the Anesthesia Podcast. Welcome to our Anesthesia Podcast this evening. Um, And we're going to be talking about the paper Treatment Thresholds for Intraoperative Hypotension in Clinical Practice, a prospective cohort study in older patients in the UK. And first, I'd like to welcome um, the other people here on my podcast. And I thought what would be really great was to say who they are and what they do now. But also because this was a fantastic training network study and publication, also talk about what they were doing when the study was um, voted into RAFT and started. So we have Alex Wickham, who's a consultant anaesthetist at Imperial College Healthcare Trust London, who specialises in vascular, major trauma and um, upper GI surgery, with research interest in pain after trauma and rib injury. And at the time, he was an ST5 trauma fellow in London. Sam Clark is a consultant in intensive care perioperative medicine and anaesthesia at UCLH in London with a specialist interest in critical care echo. His current research interests include critical care and perioperative ultrasound and metabolomics. Then he was a critical care echo fellow at the John Radcliffe in Oxford and also the chair of RAFT, which was the Research and Audit Federation of Trainees. Caroline Thomas is a consultant in anaesthetics at Leeds Teaching Hospital NHS Trust, and she specialises in perioperative medicine, colorectal and thoracic anaesthesia. She's an honorary senior clinical lecturer at Leeds University and the NIHR speciality lead in Yorkshire and Humber for anaesthesia, perioperative medicine and pain. At the time, she was an ST7 Yorkshire and Humber trainee in their deanery, and she was the secretary of RAFT. And finally, we have David Heiting dialing in from Australia today, who is a staff specialist and deputy director of anaesthesia at the Princess Alexandra Hospital in Brisbane. And he has a specialist interest in neuroanesthesia. His research interests are in optical neuromonitoring techniques for cerebral hemodynamics and metabolism. However, at the time, he was completing a PhD in neuroscience alongside dual anaesthetic and ICM training in London, was the NIAA trainee rep and also was the founder of the Pan-London Audit and Research Trainee Network. So welcome everybody to this podcast. And I want to start off by asking Alex to sort of summarise the paper for us. So the the paper's about interoperative hypotension in older patients. Uh, We knew before coming, before doing the study, that it is both common. Um, There are many, many definitions, uh, but we didn't know what the the definition used in regular clinical practice is. Um, We also knew that hypertension is associated with harm. Um, The thresholds that are routinely used weren't uh, weren't well described, and so we aim to identify both how common it is using a variety of uh, definitions, uh, and then look at how anaesthetists treat it and when they treat it, both looking at their, what they wrote down or what was charted and then asking them um, when they said they were treated as a survey of intended uh, And so we did this across... Yes, we can hear you. Okay. Uh, so we did this uh, using the, the RAF network, uh, which is uh, an umbrella organisation which represented the 14 training networks at the time. So we were able to run it across... Um, England, Scotland and Wales uh, in 196 centres and managed to get a really representative picture 
of how common intraoperative hypertension is in older patients um, and how people are treating it. It was a really, it was a really nice snapshot study um, that ran in uh, late 2016, early 2017. Um, once we'd identified the patients over locally agreed periods, we then followed the patients up at 30 days to look for um, side effects or complications of intraoperative hypertension, which are already widely described by uh, so death, myocardial injury, kidney injury, uh, stroke. Um, and we got a fantastic response from the trainees. Um, it, was a, it was an enormous study at the time. We recruited 4,700 patients. Uh, we got data from 3,300 anaesthetists um, who looked after those patients. And we demonstrated that intraoperative hypertension was common, uh, that people were treating it below recommended thresholds, um, and that there was, we didn't, it wasn't unfortunately powered to show an association with some of the harms, and we never intended it to do that. Uh, but we did find that the longer you patients are hypertensive, the, the greater chance of a rising creatinine, which is going the wrong way. Is, uh, uh, so, the key findings were that it's common, uh, that we're not treating it perhaps as, uh, as readily as we might, and that has implications both for future research and for uh, clinical practice. So, I mean, it was an amazing response rate from the trainees around the UK and a real um, achievement for RAFT. But where did the project come from, David? How did it sort of come about? That's a very good question. Um, it takes me back quite a number of years now. So we were forming uh, PLAN, the PAN London um, Trainee Research Network, uh, and at the end of 2013, beginning of 2014. So we're looking for a first project, and intraoperative hypertension had started to become very topical then. Uh, I think Stu White and Ian Moffat's paper on hip uh, anesthesia and intraoperative hypertension had just come out or, the, or one of their first ones. Um, and we were really just looking for something that was both achievable and important question. Uh, so we settled on looking at intraoperative hypertension plus some other measures of the anesthetic. I think we were looking at the biz use and other measures that might influence cerebral perfusion. Um, so. We piloted that um, and that worked well. We ran it across 20 hospitals and actually that we were surprised by the excellent response. Uh, not that we expected not to be excellent, but uh, actually things were a lot more forthcoming than we had anticipated for our first project. And that was a great success. We showed similar findings that although we, uh, I guess, cognitively would report that uh, we want to have better blood pressure control for older patients. Actually, what we actually do is slightly different, whether that is because we're, there's a delay to response or um, we're just um, not necessarily focused on that at particular times or we have different targets for different patients. Um, yeah, that we found a similar finding that the majority of patients had a blood pressure treatment, probably below 60, uh, although it's difficult to necessarily say the exact target based on interpretation of the nodes. 
Um, and a number of questions came out of that, particularly why it was low, whether people chose to treat that low or that was just a feature of the documentation. So it was quite timely in 2015 uh, when there were calls for raft projects. We'd actually completed this project and um, I don't think it was published at that stage, but it was certainly towards publication. Um, so we were successful to get in the uh, round for raft projects and that was taken forward for the project in 2016. Uh, so that's probably enough speaking from me. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Sam, well, actually, you know, Sam, Alex, how did you set it up? Sam, you were steering the raft ship at the time. It was this huge project and a huge ground to cover, lots of trainees. What happened? How did you do it? Well, uh, I think I think David's right though. I yeah, I mean I to start with let me can I name check a couple of people they were at, I took over raft just after they decided it was a project and Tom Clark my namesake who's down in Torbay um had been the sort of original chair of raft and and a number of people including David himself have been kind of quite instrumental in trying to get this organization up off the ground. Um and then I came in in early um, was it 2016, 2015, and then and, and became the chair as this project was there. And I was told that somehow we had to get it to work. And, and Alex and I had to become colleagues and friends very quickly as we worked out what we were going to do, and, and, and David as well. And, and Cal also became secretary at the same meeting. And, and we were all left kind of going, okay, how does this thing work? Um, and we took it from there. Um, and... I think to explain how and why we made the choices we made, you've got to slightly understand what raft is, and and you know, a, anesthesia goes around the world, and and I and Alex has alluded to it as an umbrella organisation, which is what we always referred to ourselves. Um, it's an umbrella organisation or a network of groups of trainees from different parts parts of the country, so they each local area sets up its own network and they choose to do that of their own accord and they were becoming up so there was a number of things that all happened at the same time yes intraoperative tension was becoming important but so was trainees becoming involved in research and trainees all started thinking along the same lines and amazingly before twitter when we could each have our own thoughts and yet they spread around somehow nebulously um it's probably through conferences and slightly slower and they realized that they could take the advantage, their greatest weakness, which is that they never stay in one place for very long and make it their greatest strength, that they could take new ideas to different hospitals relatively quickly and spread ideas around. And the fact that they were being pulled together for training meetings and teaching and then spread ideas that way. And very quickly, one network set up after another, David's alluded to Plan, who did Quince, and that was the basis of this project, but there were others all the way around the country and they were all coming up and there were about 14 or 15 by the time that we ran iHype and there were more by the time we ran the next project. Um, but we were very much, Raft was very much there to help those networks talk to each other. They weren't there to, to dictate what happened. So everything we then did was, was the idea that we were a facilitating organization that brought power up from the bottom and then hopefully helped disseminate it back down 
And so it was doing multiple things. It was there to do good science. It was there to, but it was also there to help support trainees do good science and therefore teach people how to do good science. And so it had many, many sort of branches. And we were basically doing a project that was designed to be the test of a set of systems and the proof a set of systems worked and that they would also deliver. And so it became this kind of giant project beyond just the research that we did, as Cal knows, as, as we all did, as we were all sitting there trying to work out what we did. And so we all went to work learning very quickly with the help of some many great people doing research in this country, how to do that. Alex learned more about what CAG meant and REC meant. And do you remember the conversation, mate, when we were sitting there trying to work out what uh, the PBPP, which I can never remember what it stands for, but it's the Scottish organization, because we realized, which we didn't know, that the rules were different in Scotland from in England. And, and that we had to go out and reapply for the right for Scottish trainees to do the same project because they were part of RAFT. So we, we had to sort that out. So there were very m- many things like that very quickly. And again, Cal knows that very well from running Dales, quite how much you have to do a number of different bits of paperwork to get everybody involved in all the countries. Logistically, the there were quite a privacy panel as well. Logistically, there were quite a lot of things to overcome, which you know you did brilliantly as an organization. If we sort of look down towards the um, methods of your paper, you were looking at intraoperative hypotension in um, older patients. So how did you pick what your parameters were going to be? How did you sort of boil down that method that you then took out to all these centres to collect data from? It had to be something that was deliverable uh, in the hands of trainees who might not have done very much research. Uh, So it had to be pragmatic for trainees to deliver. Um, So we picked uh, a 48-hour working Two, two working days, four-day time period, uh, during which data could be collected, because that fits with days off or could be fitted around days off and a few days study leave, perhaps. Uh, we set, set a one-month window in which it had to be achieved, so we um, at the same time. Um, and the, the variables that we selected were very much based on what we'd done for quints. We knew from the, the research evidence that uh, the, the magnitude, so the depth of hypotension by a number of variables and, and the duration of hypotension and things that mattered. Um, and so we picked uh, what were consent or the best thresholds and consensus targets at the time. So we had the, the then Association of Anaesthetists, Great Britain and Ireland, um, 20% drop uh, in systolic blood pressure. So we picked that as a threshold. We used uh, data from Sessler's work looking at um, uh, overall cutoff of 1965. Um, and then we picked uh, pre um, comorbid factors, pre comorbid factors that are known to be associated with adverse uh, outcomes, presence of ischemic heart disease, and so you picked lots of comorbidities. Sorry, you dropped out, um, uh, Alex, a little bit. Um, and you've got uh, three different sort of guidelines or protocols to what constituted intraoperative hypotension, if I've read the paper right. Yep. 
and mm. and at, and your results obviously showed that it's very common uh, mm-hmm. that patients that have um, hypotension intraoperatively, and um, there seemed to be a difference between which ones met which criteria of intraoperative hypotension and which ones met the uh, met the other in the f- sort of the amount of patients. And um, why do you think that was? Do you just think they didn't all agree as guidelines or or do you think people are looking at absolute numbers when they treat hypertension rather than a 20% drop, which you talk about in your discussion? One of the most common answers that Anistas gave in the survey was that they, they targeted this 20% drop in systolic blood pressure. And that was because it was widely published uh, AAGBI guideline. Can you hear me or am I dropping out? No, no you're, you're, you're in there. Uh, very close to it. Uh, in 2014, uh, so it was a widely published guideline. So a lot of people quoted it, but it seemed to be that um, that's actually really quite tight uh, value. You know, if you've got somebody with a systolic, starting systolic blood pressure or normal blood pressure, so 140 over 90, that means treating hypoten- treating a systolic blood pressure of 110, roughly, um, which most people aren't doing. And, and so what our data showed was that most people are treating an absolute threshold around systolic of around about 90 or a mean artery pressure of about 60. Uh, and so there was this disconnect between what people were perhaps intending to do and what they were uh, documenting that they were doing. Uh, yeah, I, I just don't think people believe truly in, in, in the number in that 20% number, they didn't seem to have faith. I'm not sure whether they still do. I suspect if we ran it again, they'd still be treating an absolute lumber if that, but they do that more consistently than they were then. We were at a point in time where it was becoming increasingly really relevant, but people hadn't truly moved to doing it. And so there was a split amongst the people who wanted to do something about it and those who didn't, but even those who did were still saying, okay, I'm, am I really gonna make this at a you know, give metraminol at 140 or run phenylephrine as infusions. And it wasn't common um, at the time where we ran this study. More people are running infusions now, but even so, I, I suspect you'd still find they'd treat an absolute number over a percentage. It's basically well, easier, easier to do. Yeah. I, I think it's very interesting because from a physiological perspective, you'd expect different people to have different requirements in terms of hemodynamics. Blood pressure is a very coarse measure. Um, obviously, it leaves out a lot of different hemodynamic parameters that are important. But you'd expect to need to have different targets for different patients. And taking a relative drop, trying to target something close to your baseline is a way of individualizing care. You would have, from a scientific point of view, um, that's got many positives about it. Uh, I think it's interesting looking at the big data studies that have looked into this and they've actually found that a target of less than a drop less than 65 map is equivalent in mortality and morbidity for a 20% drop. So that basically means a 20% drop is much higher treatment threshold than less than 65 map. So reconciling that um, with a little bit of mental agility may mean that actually we're at 65, we are potentially under-treating some people. Maybe there are some people that benefit from a much tighter target, particularly those with normal or higher baseline blood pressure. Uh, but it isn't whole another discussion about how you define what someone's baseline blood pressure actually is. Um, and particularly then what happens under anesthetics, which is kind of outside the scope of this discussion. But 
Um, no, yeah, I, mean, I think it was very interesting to see the survey results that people said, look, we recognize physiologically this is a, a desirable target, but actually we just don't use it. It's pretty clear from the difference between the survey results and the actual treatment thresholds that were lifted from the anesthetic records that people just aren't using a um, relative drop. I mean, that was what was so great about the study. You had such a high uptake of patients who were eligible that took part in the study. I know it was non-consenting, but it was you recruited practically every patient who was eligible in hospitals. But also your survey response rate for anaesthetists who were treating these patients who were all asked about what their thresholds were was fantastically high. Caroline, how did you engage your, or how do you engage your trainees to bring these brilliant response rates back? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Thanks, Helen. Um, so I was involved in this project really from a raft point of view, and then obviously in the subsequent project is more of the central steering group. But I think I think as a group we we learned an awful lot over the course of iHype, and that's really um, I think I think a lot of that engagement comes from the fact that these projects are really really come um, from from grassroots level. It's quite an it's quite an, a sort of an organic growth really amongst the trainees, and I think because they're projects that have been. Um, being put together by trainees, everybody feels as if they have that ownership, um, and I think that I think that's really important. You know, people are being less told. You know, you've you've got to do this project, and it's more that you know it's it's a real project that people want to can can get behind and get on board with. Um, and I think because the um, <laughs> other things that we learned really were how to how to design in a way um, bespoke projects for RAF because. It's clearly quite an unusual and unconventional model, really, of how of how to carry out large scale research. Um, but really sort of how to how to design a project around the needs of the network, which I think Sam brought in some aspects. We needed something where where we offer where we offer a window, for example, but people can choose their own site, their own site days within that window to maximize their their chances of recruiting and to, to, to maximize the numbers that they can get involved. And also thinking carefully about the duration of follow-up and the kinds of parameters that we're looking for, things that can be collected in a way that fits around trainee rotors as they were at the time. Um, so I think I think all of those aspects really having a real sense of ownership of a project as well as a a bespoke project really that sort of almost choreographed on the network to to give it that success yeah i think that's absolutely right i mean you you're i remember us having huge discussions about when we actually ran and that was a combination of making sure that we were we were ready and and, and exam dates and when people were applying for stuff and 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 this is i suspect the difference is you've got to that's the balance with with a project like this if you're going to run it in network terms is you've got to you've got to balance the right science, and it has to be worthwhile. Otherwise, you won't inspire people with with the practicalities of using a group of people who are doing this for the love of it. Mm. And I, I just all the way along, and I, I must have bored bored Alex with this phrase the whole time. I just had Kevin Costner's thing in it, my head, you know, back from Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will come. And we did not know they would come. It's a bit like David alluded to with running the plan projects. We were really grateful for a whole bunch of people's work. You know, I mean, 
we were so reliant on on the local leads to to, to corral their troops. They, we were we were reliant on the regional leads and the committees at these areas to find people to do this work for us. And and we, <laughs> there's there's a person who's not on here who 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 needs to be name checked. Actually, is is a guy called David Fallaher who who built the technology behind this and ran the red cap for us and, and basically procured the right to use the red cap for us. But he managed to come up with a way that allowed people to 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 record all the data in a legitimate well-governed way without letting what was it 700 people directly onto red cap which would be a nightmare in terms of your government and, and can i just can i just confirm sam red cap was the data collection tool that you yeah, used but, to collect but it was more than that and and I, I won't be really boring about it um but essentially we used a web-based tools to allow people to get not to get into red cap but record their data directly into red cap and it was really clever so we used a we used a red cap survey um, for the data collection, but people were able, one of the unique things was that people were able to sign up uh, and they, they couldn't sign up unless they the form was filled in in such a way that they had a consultant supervisor and that they had, uh, right. they, they'd achieved R&D sign up. So it was done in a very uh, clever way. It was, it was very, very organized. So I would just get certificates of um, people taking part and, and through that I could build a register of, or we could build a register of um, who was who was taking part. So we actually have 750 collaborators across the, across think, the sites. I think that's what's so fantastic about this study. And you collected so much data about how people had anaesthetics, how blood pressure was managed. All of that is like little nuggets within your paper. Was there anything in there that was really surprising to you that you found? Any results that, you know, you sort of were expecting hypotension to be under-treated, but what did you find that surprised you about what you published? One of the things that surprised me the most was that you'd expect the hypotension to be perhaps worse in those with more comorbidities or having higher risk, longer operations. It didn't matter. It was across the board, all ages, all comorbidities, all operations, uh, different ASA physical status or urgency of operation, everybody was getting hypertension. Um, predominantly in the first 30 minutes, uh, so caused by us rather than uh, in, in the surgery. Uh, and it's the difference between the difference between handwritten records and electronic records. Significant difference in hypotension, however you measured it, between I mean, electronic records and handwritten records, which I found quite interesting. That's the elephant in the room, isn't it, for this for this yeah. paper? I think that's mm. the thing, is that we always, we, we, we knew that there potentially would be a difference in this, and we always thought that it would be an interesting area to look at, because the idea is that we are under-recording the level of hypotension, which suggests deep down, we're all aware that we shouldn't be really letting it happen. And it, it, given many of us now now run on sort of electronic charts, again, it would be interesting to see what it, it showed if we did it again. Maybe we'd make more effort to avoid it, but we'd still be seeing it. And we also kind of assuming from the, these results with the first, first 30 minutes that we can, that we almost can do something and then it'll be all right, we'll, we'll fix it. <laughs> And it's it's amazing that we don't try and do something about it earlier than we do and prepare for it beforehand. Um, yeah, moving away from the mentality of just 
wait for the next blood pressure or wait for the surgeon to put the scalpel in to bring the pressure up. We may have repeated the study in Australia with just electronic records, actually, Sam. Um, so oh, yeah. you just await, oh, await the results. Don't, don't, don't <laughs> read the publication, David, when it comes out. And, and why do you think we do that? Do you th did your survey give us any idea of why you think we do that do you have insights yourselves of you know this discrepancy between charts and electronic charts this discrepancy between what we think we're treating and what we actually treat we didn't have a free text section asking about that and i think that's certainly an area for future research why are people using the thresholds they're using why are they treating hypertension the way they're they are now it's possible you know, we only looked at vasopressor administration because that was an easy thing a simple thing to pick up from the anesthetic chart it's you can't see when somebody's increased the rate of fluids or decreased the anesthetic particularly easily unless you're stood in the anesthetic room in the theater and actually watching the uh, management take place and then you alter people's potentially alter people's behavior um so I didn't get a feel for why that was speculate. David, have you got any thoughts? Um, so I, th I think the key thing of interest is what pressure people are actually treating. And although there are limitations of a written record, there's naturally some smoothing. You can't document it and give an anesthetic with a high like it's just not going to be exact um I, I think it still documents what people intend as or what they generally feel as too low so in some ways we're testing the same thing twice with the survey and the documentation what blood pressure is anesthetist across a whole cross section of different hospitals not just academic centers with electronic notes what blood pressure are they actually what do they think is reasonable? What are they starting to treat? Um, and I think the, at the very minimum, the documented blood pressures do still reflect that. Uh, you would anticipate a big difference. Um, we just presented the electronic data from Australia at the ANSCA ASM. So um, I think that will give a bit of extra insight. Um, I, th I think generally over time, we've become a bit more tight with our blood pressure management. Um, and certainly in Australia, I see vasopressor infusions, et cetera, coming out a lot more than I had seen in the UK. I'm not sure what practice has done there since there, but I think the profile of the issue has been raised. Vasopressor infusions, sorry. No, I was going to say, you managed, you managed to show what people were doing in your study. Sorry, Sam. I was going to say, I think one of the things that that is important about a study like this where you involve you know, 750 people in doing it is one, why did we pick this study? We picked it because the trainees picked it. They, they voted for it out of the, the, the studies that were presented, of which there were about four, which were really quite good. And it, because it was important to us, we were all registrars at the time, all of us. <laughs> and, and, 
And it was something where we were, people were beginning to have that feeling that it was something that was important. Ian's work was inspiring to us and we all wanted to do it. But not only that, I think it changed the practice of many of the people who did what they did. And they're now coming through a young consultants. David, yes, actually, you see a lot more vasopressor infusions for right or for wrong, depending on your arguments about fluid and, and the other things that we could all argue about for hours, which I agree are probably outside the realms of this podcast. But, but, but you know, we a study like this changed how a generation of registrars thought about what they were doing. It inspired them to, to do something different. People changed what they did. And, and the same thing when we ran Dales, people know a damn sight more about allergy through NAP6 and through Dales than they did beforehand. So you can use these projects almost like education as well as science because you inform people about the science that's going on behind them while they do it. And I think that's a really useful part of it. And it feels like this quite a lot of impact from this study. Um, Caroline, as far as the trainee networks are concerned, what do you think the impact IHYPE had to like shape things going forward? Um, so I think that, um, as, as we said, I think getting that... Um, that that engagement really, and it was a it was the, a, a project on a scale that we as a group hadn't run before. And I think that having that um, having having run it successfully um, across the whole network um, has as as demonstrated that it's a it's a model that works. Um, it's been used subsequently um, on you know the, the Dale study, for example, that Sam has just mentioned. Um, I think also impact on um, educational aspects, but also on perhaps the some of the newer um, regional groups. So there are now um, 19 um, regional groups who work either individually or often with their close neighbours running collaborative projects. So I think it's um, it's demonstrated to people that these collaborations do work. Um, and if you pick the right project at the right time, um, can be can be very effective in terms of data collection, um, but also in terms of the education and um, even going on to the sort of subsequent projects that Raft, that Raft have run, more of the quality improvement aspects in feeding back the data that local sites have collected themselves. And we've seen more um, community networks spring up around the world. So I know David's been starting some in Australia, but uh, when I when this study was being advertised, I've been followed by uh, training networks starting up in Spain. So the, the message is getting out there and it's, it's growing. And it's a really collaborative, brilliant way to learn about how to conduct research and grow as a trainee. It's now, my first the, study. And, and what, a what a first study, Alex. Um, as far as the impact of your study results are concerned, what do you think, how do you think this will sort of progress intraoperative hypotension treatment or research in the future? I think um, obviously we're under we're awaiting RCTs in uh, tighter treatment of intraoperative hypertension and other hemodynamic parameters. Um, there is, of course, the Impress study, which looked at perioperative vasopressors, uh, and a lot of those are quite topical because you have to choose a control group and a treatment group, and what targets do you choose for those? Uh, what is what is it? Uh, what's appropriate for a control group? They discussed this with the Impress study, and actually, uh, looking back at their results, there were quite a lot of 
comments about their control group and them allowing a 40% drop in the blood pressure before treatment um, and treating it a low, lower level of systolic blood pressure greater than 80. But our results really just show that that's probably consistent with normal practice. Um, so if you have a control group which is uh, tighter than that, then actually you've got two treatment arms potentially. You need to have an idea about what your normal clinical practice is um, to know how to design your RCTs. Now it's a whole another ethical discussion about what you should do for that group. But um, it's important to have results like ours, which demonstrate what normal practice is. So you can interpret the results of a lot of these trials in the context of what we normally do in the UK. And it will be a shifting goalpost with trends. It always is. But it's very important to have that cross-sectional data across all hospitals uh, to work out what our actual baseline practice is. So I, th I think it's a good starting point. I don't think that we've got any results there that say, look, you should be doing this or that. It's really a snapshot of what practice is. And um, it, it is really an important starting point for setting up interventional studies, in the, particularly in the UK, I think. Well, actually, uh, and it's becoming very topical. But, but, well, we've got Danny Wong, one of your co-authors, who's tweeted through that he thinks studies like this are very useful for setting up parameters for interventional studies. So I think he agrees with you, David. Sam? Yeah, you, maybe you could easily take what we've suggested and suggested, if you take the idea that we treated an absolute number, you could have absolute being the control arm versus a, a, a percentage drop as being the way you did the interventional arm so that you're slightly avoiding the ethics of the situation um, as to how low can you let somebody get before you treat them. So there are ways that you could take what we've done uh, uh, and, and turn it into an interventional arm on the study. Um, and, and take it from there. And, but I think that those kind of interventional studies are probably not RAF studies because of the technicalities of how you go about it. They probably need CTN backing in a, in a sense, you know, in a significant way, not um, because they just take longer to do and, and it takes longer to find the patients and signing people up for them is a specific challenge. And so to, to round up our discussion tonight, um, would you change your practice based on your results? So you're going to keep doing what you're doing. Uh, the reading that I've done um, through this study and the results that I've found, uh, I have changed my practice. Um, They've changed your practice, Alex. Absolutely. I have a, a very low threshold for vasopressor uh, infusion. Um, I'm, have vasopressors almost as part of my induction. I've reduced the amount of induction agent I give. I give vasopressors chases with fluid to try and keep the blood pressure as tight as tight and as close to a normal value. Um, that might not be the pre-induction value, but a uh, average taken of any readings that I can find preoperatively. Um, and using slightly tighter blood pressure alarm settings. Um, just to allow myself. And when I was using paper charts and sh shortly after doing the study, I was actually drawing a line. 20%. I can't yeah, do that. I, I, I can't do that with my current electronic charts. No, no, we, we, we talked about doing that as the QI version of, of, of this project afterwards, is whether we could 
we could just get people's draw line and then everybody moved to electronic. Yes. <laughs> it wasn't so easy. But I like setting your alarms for 20%. That's a great, that's a great idea. David, are you just running infusions in Australia anyway? So this is irrelevant? Oh, or- I mean, I, I said we ran more infusions, but the percentage of patients that get them is pretty low. Um, I think it probably just reflects general change in anesthetic practice over time rather than the Australian, particularly Australian thing. Um, I think it's caused a lot more head scratching for me, I've, yeah, which is causing me to thin out a bit, I guess. Um, I, I think we need to wait for the randomized control trials before we get too carried away with different mm. fads, et cetera. But I, I think it's fair that everyone feels a little bit uncomfortable at some sort of blood pressure threshold because it's pretty clear that there must be a lower limit for uh, acceptable practice. It's just defining what that is. That's the ethical problem in designing interventional studies. So I think probably if I looked back at my practice, I've become a little bit more aware and thoughtful about that. Um, and but certainly the patients that I'm anesthetizing now are much uh, sicker and complex than the ones uh, uh, back in the UK because that just tends to be the practice here that everyone who's well is out primarily in the independent sector and we get all of the more comor- multi-comorbid, frail patients. So, yeah, I do find that I am actually defending blood pressure and cardiac output, et cetera, a lot more. Um, and I think that iHype has really helped to focus that attention. Uh, but I'd be quite cautious in um, saying anything other than a snapshot of practice for it. I think it's raised the profile of the issue, but it's very difficult to come to any kind of um, inference around blood pressure and outcome. And whenever you describe our study, that's kind of the first thing that people ask because everyone's kind of focused on that. Everyone wants to know, is hypotension associated with all these different uh, organ dysfunctions and outcome, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that wasn't what our study was about. It was really about defining normal practice in the UK. And we look forward to other people's research to try and interpret our results in that context. And I think that is the key to actually implementing new practice, having an understanding of what the baseline practice is in the UK and then combining that with some future research on what the optimal practice might be. That was such a good answer to my very unfair question. I'm not going to throw it to you, Caroline. Don't worry. <laughs> um, I think you've all given us a really good answer to that. So, um I think that's really us drawn to the close at at the end of our podcast. I'd like to thank um, all four of our speakers for dialing in on an evening, two of whom are on holiday today to discuss this paper. Um, I'd like to advertise RAFT for any um, anaesthetists out there with trainees who are interested in audit and research. Um, RAFT's website is www.rafttrainees.org. Look at your um, local trainee networks. I think probably I speak for everybody here, a massive congratulations to all 750, was it, collaborators on this study. Um, And I just want to say this paper is free to download. So um, it's free to download, I think, uh, at the moment. And um, yes, download it, read it. And I'd be interested to see what other people think about what we've been talking about. So thank you, everybody. Thank you, Helen. Thank you, and thanks to all of the trainees. They've done an amazing job. 
the Anesthesia Podcast.